Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already In the first two episodes of this year, we covered the case of the Ypsilanti Ripper, also known as the Michigan Murders, where young women were brutally assaulted and murdered in the area around two college campuses in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, Michigan. Then we had a conversation with documentary filmmaker Andrew Templeton about his 1969 project set in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Today, we're going to go in-depth on one of those murders the case of Jane Mixer, the only one of the Michigan murders that was not thought to be committed by John Norman Collins. Collins is currently serving life in prison for the 1969 murder of Eastern Michigan University freshman, 18-year-old Karen Sue Bynaman. With Collins sentenced for only one of the murders, that meant the other cases were technically unsolved until DNA testing led them to reopen the investigation into the murder of the third victim. Come with me as we take a long look at the life and death of the third victim of the Ypsilanti Ripper, 23-year-old Jane Mixer. Jane Mixer knew how to shine. She was a combination of intelligence and good looks. Her family, parents Marion and Dan, knew it, so did her siblings, brother Dan and sister Barbara. Her peers knew it as well. In 1964, when she graduated from Muskegon High School, she was an honor student in the top 10% of her class. Grades weren't enough, though. Jane was a cheerleader, a member of the debate team, and she was voted best all-around girl by her graduating class. She was one of two students selected to give a commencement address, and in the fall of 64, she enrolled at the University of Michigan College of Literature, Science, and Arts, where she majored in economics. She graduated from the University of Michigan in 1968. Her professors described her as a, quote, dream student. In the fall of 68, she was one of the few women who were admitted to the highly competitive University of Michigan Law School. While in the law program, Jane, who was shy and reserved, lived in the Law Quadrangle Dormitory. She started dating a man named Phil, and the pair got engaged toward the end of February 1969. Jane wanted to share the happy news of her engagement with her parents in Muskegon. She did not have a car on campus and needed to get a ride back home. She'd never used the university ride board in the student union before, but decided it might be the best way to make a trip home for the weekend. 
She arranged a ride with a fellow student named David Johnson. She'd never met Johnson, but shared his information with her folks during a phone call. She told them she and David would be leaving Ann Arbor around 6.30 p.m. on March 20th, which would get her into Muskegon by 10 o'clock that night. It was 6 o'clock on March 20th when Phil came to her apartment to say goodbye. She told him that David Johnson was picking her up at 6.30. At 7, Phil called to see if she'd left yet, but Jane was still there. David was running late. When Phil called her again at 8 o'clock, there was no answer. He figured she was finally on her way home. Phil was surprised to get a phone call in the middle of the night from Jane's father, Dan, telling him that Jane never arrived in Muskegon. Phil was worried. He got dressed and headed out. He went to Jane's apartment to see if she'd returned. Meanwhile, Dan Mixer called the Muskegon police and reported that his daughter was missing. It was about 7 a.m. while Phil was still out looking for Jane, who had not returned to her residence or arrived at her parents' home, that a woman named Nancy was saying farewell to her son who was headed to the bus stop. A few minutes after he left, he came back home. Her son was holding a shopping bag from J.L. Hudson. He said he'd found the shopping bag. He again said goodbye to his mom and left for the bus stop. Nancy looked inside the bag and found a wrapped gift labeled Mom and a folder of what appeared to be student notes. When Nancy looked more closely, she realized the bag was smeared with blood. Concerned for her son's safety, she went to the car to retrieve him from the bus stop. As she headed down the driveway, Nancy looked at the cemetery across the street from their home. That's when she saw the body. Nancy began to scream. Denton Cemetery was in a remote and out-of-the-way area in 1969, and it's still in a remote and out-of-the-way area some 50 years later. Located between Michigan Avenue and the Willow Run Airport, it seems like it's in a busy location, but Cross Street is a dirt road, even today. There are a couple of houses across the road from the cemetery, but it's an isolated and lonely location. Jane's body was laying on a headstone just inside the cemetery entrance. Her head was propped up and she was displayed right next to the entrance just inside the fence. There was a bloody towel beneath her head. The upper half of her body was covered with a raincoat, the lower half concealed beneath a grave blanket. Her pantyhose were pulled down and her sweater was pushed up, leaving her exposed. The killer tied a pair of pantyhose around her neck, but the hose did not belong to Jane. Jane's shoes were placed neatly beside her body. Also nearby, they found her suitcase and a copy of the book, Catch-22. Investigators determined that she'd been killed elsewhere and her remains arranged at the cemetery. Jane Mixer, like previous victims of the Ypsilanti Ripper, had been posed out in the elements, displayed by her killer. Unlike previous victims of the Ypsilanti Ripper, she had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber weapon. Then she was strangled with a nylon stocking which was left around her neck. Despite the condition of her clothing, there was no sign of sexual assault. And unlike previous victims of the Ripper, she had not been beaten. At autopsy, a single drop of dried blood was scraped from her left hand. Remember, it's 1969. DNA testing is not an option, 
but they collected and stored the blood in evidence. Because it's 1969, they're using the tools available to them and they make plaster casts of the tire tracks and shoe prints from the entrance to the cemetery. One of the shoe prints they cast was of a cat's paw brand heel from a man's right shoe. This cat's paw heel is distinctive. It's got curves and loops. Cat's paw was a popular and well-known brand in the 1960s. If you're interested, a quick Google search will show you an image of the heel and its distinctive markings. What police did not find at the scene was a murder weapon. One of the first things investigators did was track down Jane's fiancé, Phil. They asked about his activities that night and, according to the Detroit Free Press, police were able to clear him and rule him out as a suspect. Phil told investigators about Jane scheduling a ride with David Johnson. Police searched, but they didn't find the David Johnson that Jane had scheduled a ride with. There was a student named David Johnson, and at 10 o'clock on March 20th, a woman identifying herself as Janie Mixer called him, but Johnson didn't answer. This call was handled by his roommate. The caller asked the roommate if David still intended to drive her to Muskegon that night. The roommate told the caller that it wasn't likely because David was performing in a play that evening. When police connected with David Johnson, he said he didn't know Jane and that he'd never spoken with her. He had a solid alibi for that night as he was indeed performing in a play on campus. A search of the law library turned up a phone book with the words Mixer and Muskegon written on the cover. The word Muskegon was misspelled. The phone book was photographed and taken into evidence. With leads drying up, they looked at the previous two murders and sought out connections. Jane was the third co-ed killed in that area in the last two years, but the previous victims, Joan Shell and Mary Fleezar, had been strangled, not shot. Remember, Jane was shot in the head, and then after death, a stocking was tied tightly around her neck. And while Jane's was the first of the murders to happen in 1969, hers was not the last. On March 25th, Marilyn Skelton of Romulus was murdered. On April 16th, 13-year-old Dawn Bassam was killed. And on June 9th, 21-year-old Alice Callum. And then on July 26th, 18-year-old Karen Bynaman. Police would go back and forth as to whether Jane Mixer's murder was connected to the other cases. In August of 69, John Norman Collins would be arrested for the murder of Karen Bynaman. After his arrest, the murders stopped. According to forensic psychologist and author Catherine Ramsland, quote, investigators gave the media the sense that, even if we can't prove he killed all of them, we know he did. According to a 2005 story in the Detroit Free Press, Jane's sister Barbara said, since the murders stopped, we wanted to believe Collins was the guy. The pain surrounding her death was so bad, we did not want to go back to it. And as we discussed in the last episode, Collins was found guilty of Bynaman's murder and given a life sentence. At this point, a weary police force started packing up evidence in the other six cases. It was determined that Collins was likely guilty of those murders, but there was not sufficient evidence in 1969 to try him for the other slayings. Grieving families had to make do with the knowledge that the guy was in prison, even if it wasn't for the murder of their loved one. 
And so the evidence in Jane Mixer's case that went into storage included bullet fragments from Jane's head, Polaroids of a phone book found in the law school library that had Jane's name written on it, the stockings that had been tied around Jane's neck, and the scraping of blood taken from Jane's left hand. Now, the reason they had Polaroids of the phone book was that a janitor had tossed the book into the trash at some point, so the original evidence was lost. That phone book is going to come up later in the episode, so make a note of it. Evidence would stay in storage for 30 long years. In 2001, there was a push to test any remaining evidence in the case and, hopefully, bring these unsolved murders to close. According to court documents, in 2001, evidence in Jane's case was pulled out of storage and sent to the crime lab for testing. In 2002, the evidence was tested. Now, this happened the same day that DNA samples from two men, John David Ruelas and Gary Leiterman, were also being handled in the lab, but they were being handled by a different examiner than the one working on Jane's evidence. Ruelas and Leiterman had state convictions which put their DNA on file. And this is where things get tricky. Mixer's cold case evidence was analyzed in March and April of 2002. Leiterman's buckle swab arrived at the lab in February of 2002 and was analyzed in July. John Ruella stood accused of murder, and crime scene evidence from his case arrived in February of 2002 and was analyzed in March of 2002. On December 17, 2003, the blood drop found on Jane Mixer's hand had a DNA match to John David Ruelas. The problem with this match is that in March of 1969, John Ruelas was a four-year-old boy living near Detroit's Cass Corridor. On August 26, 2004, stains found on Jane's pantyhose were matched to Gary Leiterman, who was 26 years old in 1969 and had never been a suspect or in any way connected to the Michigan murders. As part of the testing of old evidence, lab employee Dr. Stephen Milligan took cuttings of sections of the pantyhose that were thought to contain stains of a biological nature. Subsequent testing of three of the cuttings revealed the presence of DNA. Later trial testimony from lab technicians indicated that Leiterman's DNA on Mixer's pantyhose was not consistent with blood or semen, but was consistent with other biological materials including saliva, sweat, or skin cells. Leiterman's DNA was exclusively found on Mixer's pantyhose. Note, there was no DNA present from Mixer herself, even though she had been wearing the pantyhose prior to her death. According to CBS News, investigators said they also found partial matches to Leiterman's DNA in spots on the towel that was found under Jane's head. The theory was that Leiterman was sweating as he moved her body, and droplets of his sweat landed on the towel. The DNA from the pantyhose was then run through CODIS. There was a match to Gary Leiterman. His DNA was entered into the system in January 2002, after Leiterman entered a conditional plea to the offense of obtaining a controlled substance by fraud. 
Dr. Milligan calculated the probability that someone other than the defendant contributed the DNA found on these cuttings as, at its low end, one in more than 40 trillion. It appears that they have a new suspect in the murder of Jane Mixer, and listeners, we'll be right back. Gary Leiterman and John Ruelas, who were they? John Ruelas was born in July of 1964 and raised mainly by his mother, Margaret, after his father died when he was young. Ruelas struggled with his mental health and a criminal record, mainly for attacks against his mother. According to the Battle Creek Inquirer, Ruelas was charged in Battle Creek in both 1989 and 1993 for assaults against his mother. He pleaded no contest in 1990 for assaulting her with his hands, a coat hanger, and a broom handle. In 1993, he was arrested again after police learned he had literally chained his mother up inside their apartment while he was out. She did testify against her son, but said she understood that he had a deep fear of her leaving him because he lost his father at such a young age. There was another incident in 1996 where Margaret Ruelas was injured after falling out her bedroom window. She fell three stories to the ground and suffered minor injuries. She did not point the finger at her son, instead claiming that she was cleaning her bedroom alone when she tripped and fell out the window. The situation between John and his mother came to a head on Friday, January 25, 2002. John Ruelas called 911 around 5 a.m., to report that his mother was injured. When police arrived, they found a horrific and bloody crime scene. Margaret Ruelas was dead. She'd suffered 11 broken ribs and head trauma. John told police that his mother slipped in the bathroom and he'd accidentally crushed her ribs when he tried picking her up from the floor. But the blood-spattered apartment told a different story. In July of 2002, John would plead guilty to a charge of open murder. As of this writing, he is 58 years old and serving a 20- to 40-year sentence for second-degree murder at the Macomb Correctional Facility in Lenox Township. Gary Earl Leiterman was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan on September 11, 1942. He grew up in the city of Wayne. From 1956 to 1960, Gary attended Wayne Memorial High School where he played football and served as a class representative. After high school, Leiterman enlisted in the Navy, where he served as a surgical technician until 1965. After his discharge from the Navy, he went back to the city of Wayne and took a job at the local 3M plant. He eventually made a career change and began working as a traveling salesman, selling prescription drugs. In March of 1969, when Jane Mixer was murdered, he was living on Rickham Court Road in Westland, south of Cherry Hill and east of what is now I-275. Where he lived in 1969 is about seven miles as the crow flies from the Denton Cemetery where Jane's body was found. His home is about 23 miles from the University of Michigan Law School, where Jane was a student. According to friends, Leiterman was an avid hunter. He had hunting dogs, shotguns, and a .22 caliber revolver. At some point after Jane's murder, Gary moved to the West Michigan community of Paw Paw, where he worked at a Ford dealership. 
1977, Gary married his wife, Sally, and they went on to adopt two children. Gary also returned to college, earning a nursing degree. He worked as a nurse at the Borges Medical Center in Kalamazoo from 1981 through 2002. In addition to his work at the hospital, he was civic-minded. Gary served on the local school board. His life appeared to be going well, at least until 1999, when he suffered a painful bout of kidney stones and found himself addicted to pain pills. Leiterman's behavior changed. He started stealing, including helping himself to a prescription pad and forging prescriptions for medication. In October of 2001, he hit rock bottom. Leiterman was arrested for shoplifting a forged prescription. Police searched his vehicle and found dozens of blank prescription forms as well as several doses of prescription drugs. Leiterman was charged with three felonies for stealing the forms and obtaining synthetic narcotics. In the end, he made a deal with the prosecutor. On January 4, 2002, he pleaded guilty to one felony count of fraudulently obtaining drugs, and he was ordered to attend a drug treatment program. If he completed the program successfully, the case would be dismissed. In February of 2002, Gary submitted a saliva swab. Only three days prior to his guilty plea, a law took effect in Michigan, requiring convicted felons to give DNA samples to the state police. This swab is what was matched to the evidence in the Jane Mixer case. One state investigator told the Detroit Free Press, he nearly missed being discovered. He was one of the first people required to submit a DNA sample under the new law. And if you're wondering, Gary did successfully complete that program. The circuit court dismissed his conviction without prejudice on March 28, 2003. Before we continue, I want to remind you that the state police lab retested evidence in the 1969 murder of Jane Mixer. The blood drop on her hand is matched to John David Ruelas, and DNA found on the pantyhose and towel from Jane's murder scene is matched to Gary Leiterman. Only Leiterman will be charged in Jane's murder. Investigators looked for a connection between Jane, Gary, and Ruelas, and were unable to find one. They couldn't find a link to anyone in Ruelas's family, either. Toward the end of 2004, investigators finally approached Leiterman to ask him about the murder of Jane Mixer. He tells them that he didn't know Jane and didn't know anything about her murder. Jane's friends and family say they don't know Leiterman either. On November 24, 2004, Gary Leiterman is charged with Mixer's murder. His wife and now adult children stand by him, as do his friends and community. Jane's father, now in his 90s, told the media that reopening the case was like picking at a scab. He said they were only after justice if this person is guilty. And from here, the case just gets crazier. Police search the Leiterman home and find a revolver cylinder consistent with a construction and design of a Ruger 22 caliber revolver. They also find bullet fragments. After combing through records, they learn that in 1967, Gary purchased a six-shot 22 caliber Ruger revolver, a gun that he reported as stolen back in 1987. But that's not the only thing they found when they searched Leiterman's home. They found photos of a partially nude exchange student. 
In one photo, her underwear is pulled down and her shirt is pulled up. Her eyes are closed and she's laying on Gary Leiterman's bed. During their search, they also found powdered Valium and powdered Benadryl. So, on top of the murder charge, on December 8, 2004, they charged Leiterman with creating child pornography. Now, Leiterman denied taking or owning the pictures, but he would later plead guilty to a felony count of possessing child sexually abusive materials. And at this point, Gary's old roommate from the late 60s, early 70s comes forward. He told investigators that Gary kept a pile of newspapers in his bedroom and that those newspapers were focused on the Michigan murders. His roommate, Paul, said that Gary made him fire his 22 caliber handgun at a makeshift shooting range in their basement. He said that after Paul fired it once, Gary took the gun back. Paul theorized to police that Gary just wanted to get Paul's fingerprints on the weapon. When investigators spoke with other friends, co-workers, and roommates from this era, none of them recall Gary having a firing range in the basement of his home. Nor do they recall him having an obsession or interest in the Michigan murders. Gary Leiterman's trial for the murder of Jane Mixer began on July 11, 2005, in Washtenaw County. He was 62 years old when the trial began. The prosecution opened with their theory that Gary called Jane in response to her ad for a ride to Muskegon. He identified himself as David Johnson. Jane willingly entered Gary's car, and at some point he made a sexual advance that she rejected, and the evening ended in murder. The prosecution said their evidence supported the DNA evidence found on Jane's stockings. So if you're keeping score at home, the state's evidence outside of the DNA on the stockings included the child pornography case, two pieces of evidence substantiated by Paul, the former roommate, one that Gary was fascinated with the Michigan murders, and two that he owned a 22 caliber handgun, which he made Paul fire. Paul would testify for the prosecution. Another witness for the prosecution was handwriting expert Thomas Riley. He looked at photographs of the phone book from the law library. Remember, the phone book itself was tossed out decades earlier. So this handwriting analyst is working from two words captured in a Polaroid picture. Based on the two words written on the phone book, Mixer and Muskegon, and compared with Gary Leiterman's handwriting, Riley said it was, quote, highly probable that Leiterman wrote the words on the phone cover. Riley spoke about pen pressure, which he should not have done because he did not examine the original writing, only a photo, and photos do not allow you to determine pen pressure. At this point, the defense should have, but did not, bring to the attention of the jury that Riley's testimony was based on a photograph of the phone book, as opposed to the original. Remember, the original phone book was thrown out by a custodian while cleaning an evidence storage area more than 30 years earlier. And that Riley's analysis ignored certain aspects of Gary's known writing. Riley testified that the location of the writing and the fact that the word Muskegon was improperly spelled as Muskegon on several of the exemplars provided by Gary was significant to his opinion. The problem with this is that Gary was asked to recreate the words written on the front of the phone book. So, of course, he misspelled Muskegon. They told him to write it exactly as written. 
Riley's testimony improperly left the jury with the impression that he had spelled and placed the words of his own accord. Also for the prosecution was a ballistics expert who testified that bullet fragments removed from Jane's brain during her 1969 autopsy were similar to several found in Gary's home in 2004. They testified fragments from Gary's home could have been fired from a 22 caliber six-shot Ruger revolver. However, there are more than three dozen models of guns capable of firing similar bullets, and these are among the most commonly sold for that caliber. Finally, state police experts testified that there was no way that the evidence suffered from cross-contamination in the lab. According to the prosecution, Gary, Jane, and Ruelas were together on the night she was murdered, and between midnight and 3 a.m., a 26-year-old lighterman was both a murderer and a babysitter. Ruelas was a bleeding bystander to the killing. Yep, you heard that right. Rather than admit the possibility of a lab mix-up, the prosecution's theory was that Leiterman took Ruelas with him to pick up Mixer in Ann Arbor, and the toddler bled on Mixer as she lay dead at the cemetery in Wayne County. Michigan State Police forensic scientist Sarah Thibault testified that mistakes can be made in labs. However, there was no indication that one was made in Jane's case. She also testified that she was handling the evidence for Ruelas, while another scientist handled Gary's DNA and the DNA from Jane's case. Thibault said that somehow Ruelas' DNA ended up on the spot of blood found on Jane's hand. She said, quote, We were able to identify the point at which the overlap occurred. As to how or why, we were not able to figure that out. Her testimony directly contradicts the prosecution's theory that both Ruelas and Leiterman were at the crime scene that night. For the defense, Gary did not take the stand. His lawyers did raise the fact that there are multiple fingerprints in the case which are still not identified and do not match Leiterman. The defense told the jury that there was too much doubt to find Gary guilty. They focused on trying to prove that the DNA was compromised. They had an expert testify that cross-contamination was the most likely explanation of how Ruelas' DNA was on Jane's hand. The defense had their own expert witness, Dr. Daniel Crane. When Crane took the stand, he testified that the fact that evidence from the Ruelas and Mixer murders were processed around the same time raises the question of cross-contamination. He brought up that DNA has been shown to be easily transferable in detectable amounts between inanimate objects as well as from person to object. Crane testified that it was unusual and unexpected that they found Leiterman's DNA on the pantyhose without finding Mixer's DNA there as well since she was the one wearing them. He concluded that it's easy for DNA to transfer, and considering that Ruella's DNA was not mixed with Mixer's DNA, and that since the evidence from Ruella's murder of his mother was in the lab at the same time as the evidence collected during Mixer's autopsy, the presence of his DNA on Mixer's body is too coincidental to support a conclusion other than cross-contamination. The defense also attempted to bring into court the fact that the supervisor of the DNA subunit, Charles Barna, had been forced to resign after it was discovered that he cheated on a required proficiency examination regarding testing and profiling of DNA. 
However, as Barna did not work on evidence in this case, this was excluded from the court because of, quote, unfair prejudice. On July 22, 2005, after just four hours of deliberations, Gary Leiterman was found guilty of the murder of Jane Mixer. His family and attorneys were shocked by the verdict. His attorney told the Detroit Free Press, The jury disregarded so much evidence and hung the decision on one piece of evidence. If there wasn't reasonable doubt in this case, then for the 20 years I've been a lawyer, I've been living in a dream world. On August 30th, Leiterman was sentenced to life without parole. He did address the court, saying, quote, I feel no need to offer an apology or statement of remorse. However, I am not without empathy. I have a feeling for what Dr. Mixer, Dan, and Barbara went through. That was an awful time in 1969. She appeared to be a lovely young lady. I feel what that must have been like to have to live through this trial and hear the ghastly testimony and see the ghastly pictures. I am innocent of this crime and will do everything I can to appeal this crime. Now, Gary did retain new counsel and moved for a new trial on the grounds that the DNA evidence in his case was, quote, so unreliable that it should never have been allowed to ever be presented to the jury. In support of his motion, Gary presented a report prepared by Dr. Theodore Kessis, who concluded that the only reasonable explanation for the presence of Ruella's DNA in the blood collected from Jane's hand was cross-contamination of genetic samples taken in those cases, which were present in the state police crime lab at the same time. With regard to the testing of Mixer's pantyhose, Kessis additionally noted that Gary's DNA was found in amounts in vast excess to that determined by the lab to have been contributed by Jane. However, Kessis opined, given that Jane was likely wearing the hose at the time of her abduction and murder, one would expect her to have contributed a more equal amount of genetic material to the mixture. The differences in amount, Kessis concluded, suggests that Jane's DNA was deposited on the pantyhose in 1969 and had since degraded, while Gary's DNA was deposited at a much more recent point in time. Gary and his legal team argued that he deserved a new trial because of the newly discovered evidence or because of ineffective counsel because they failed to present this evidence at his trial. The court denied his motion, saying that the DNA evidence linking him to the murder was adequately and appropriately presented to the jury. In the denial, they said that the issues of contamination and the reliability of testing was addressed by Crane during his testimony. Kessis did have a differing opinion regarding testing results, but his views weren't so different from Crane's. The trial court believed that even with this new evidence, it wouldn't have made a difference in the outcome of the trial. Therefore, his request for a new trial was denied. So, what do you think? Is Gary Leiterman guilty of the murder of Jane Mixer in 1969? Did he pick up a four-year-old John Ruelas, allow the toddler to be injured to the point where he was bleeding, which explained Gary's sweat or saliva on the pantyhose and Ruelas' blood droplet on Jane's hand? Remember, according to the prosecution's theory, Mixer, Leiterman, and Ruelas were together on the night that Jane was murdered. And between midnight and 3 a.m., 26-year-old Leiterman was the murderer, and four-year-old Ruelas was a bleeding bystander. 
Following this narrative, the fact that the DNA samples from all three were together again in early 2002 in the Michigan State Police Laboratory was just a coincidence. In 2018, three professors, John Wickstead, Nicholas Christianfeld, and Jeffrey Rauder, published a Bayesian Statistical Analysis of the DNA Contamination Scenario in Forthcoming in Jury Metrics, Volume 58. In this piece, they wrote, quote, Serious reservations about the DNA evidence in this case have long been expressed. For them, the most glaring issue is that DNA testing matched John Ruelas, who was a Detroit resident and a toddler at the time of the murder. The statistical analysis presented in the professor's article compares two competing hypotheses. One is the prosecution's theory that Leiterman's DNA was deposited on Mixer's clothing at the crime scene in 1969, and he is therefore guilty. The other is the defense hypothesis that Leiterman's DNA was deposited on Mixer's clothing in the DNA lab in 2002, and he is therefore innocent. Their analysis ignores any evidence aside from the DNA. Remember, according to the prosecution, DNA on the hose came exclusively from Leiterman, with no detectable DNA from Mixer, even though she'd been wearing those hose at the time of her murder. The professors wrote, Intuition suggests that the opposite would usually be true, meaning they should find more of Mixer's DNA on the hose than Leiterman's DNA. Now, assuming that the hose were stored in such a way that the DNA would survive for 33 years, what is the probability that more of Leiterman's DNA was deposited on her hose than DNA from Mixer herself? Two recent research articles offer some guidance about the probability of finding the outcome observed in the Leiterman Mixer case, namely a measurable amount of DNA from Leiterman, the toucher, on Mixer's pantyhose, but with no measurable DNA from Mixer, the wearer. Professor Michelle Brethnack and her co-authors investigated the frequency of detection of DNA from wearer, toucher, or others when individuals wore and handled garments under normal circumstances, and reported that toucher and no wearer was observed in 15% of reportable samples. So through all of their fancy equations, the professors found that it was way more likely that contamination happened in the lab and that John Norman Collins killed Jane than it was for Gary Leiterman to be guilty of killing Jane Mixer. However, if you talk to prosecutors in the Mixer trial, there was no contamination at the lab. The professors pointed out that an NRC report on DNA technology stated, quote, laboratory errors happen even in the best laboratories and even when the analyst is certain that every precaution against error was taken. Similarly, Peter Gill and Amanda Kirkham argue it should be recognized that laboratory contamination is impossible to avoid completely, but its extent is generally unknown. Yet at the 2005 Leiterman trial, lab personnel testified that cross-contamination was impossible because every precaution had been taken to guard against contamination errors. I can't tell you if Gary Leiterman murdered Jane Mixer, but I don't believe the prosecution's theory of the crime for one minute. I don't see how Leiterman was hanging out with John Ruelas in 1969, nor do I believe that he decided to use the rideshare board to coordinate the abduction and murder of Jane Mixer. 
Gary Leiterman died in prison on July 4th, 2019. He was 76 years old. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.